Well, I am a huge movie nerd. There's a, uh, one of the favorite things to do for me is on a day off or after a long day is to, to come home and to watch a, a good movie. Uh, I actually just yesterday went and saw the new uh, Thor for the second time, love me some MCU, uh, all the nerdy kinds of things. But some of my favorite movies out there are the movies that you have to watch more than once. The, the, the movies that you, you get to the end of, of, of the movie and it's a mystery, it's a thriller, there's something happening, you're not sure, and then the final scene completely redefines, reframes the way you saw the entire movie. Some, some examples of this. Uh, the Book of Eli, The Prestige, a little movie called Arrival about aliens. Again, I, I said I'm, I'm a nerd. But the one that, I, that I've decided to ruin for you guys this morning, uh, because it's old enough that, that it's past the statute of limitations, and so it's just your fault for not seeing it, is The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense. I don't, how many of you guys have seen that movie? Okay, good. So it's not... Uh, you guys know how it ends, but it's a movie about a child psychologist named Malcolm, played by, by Bruce Willis. And, and we see him, he gets, he gets injured at the beginning of the movie, and it, it cuts to uh, the following fall, and, and he starts interacting with this, this, this young kid who, who has this, this issue. He sees, he thinks he sees dead people. And over the course of the movie, you see this Bruce Willis character, Malcolm, um, walk with, with this young kid and trying to help him process and, and eventually trying to help him figure out how, how to help these ghosts, these dead people find peace. And for those of you who've seen it, spoiler alert, you know, but at the end of the movie, we find out that Malcolm has been dead the entire movie. And when he finds out, and when you find out as the viewer, everything changes, everything is reframed. It's brilliant storytelling, brilliant filmmaking. There's something in us that loves a good surprise. We, we love a good aha moment, the, the moment of epiphany or, or revelation where everything just kind of clicks. And these kind of moments, whether in movies or in life, they leave a mark on us, they, they change us. And once we experience them, we, we can't go back. We can't unsee what we have now seen. And so this morning, we're going to see one of the biggest reframes in the Bible and arguably one of the biggest aha moments in the history of humanity. We've been uh, journeying through Acts for the last eight Weeks, and we've encountered how the earliest followers of Jesus were commissioned by Jesus in the power of the Spirit to go and witness to the world in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they're doing so with powerful preaching, powerful experiences, miraculous events. And, and so that the leaders of the day, the, the Jewish leaders in particular, we've seen them be particularly threatened. And a couple chapters ago, we saw the stoning, the first violent persecution, the stoning and killing of Stephen. And so the Christians have been scattering outside of, of Jerusalem. They've been scattering throughout all of Israel. Last week, we encountered this Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch who, who uh, represents the, the ends of the earth, a foreigner to the, to the ends of the earth who has now met Jesus. And so that's where we pick up today. We're going to be in Acts 9 if you want to open uh, with me there this morning. And, and, and so we've seen Christianity start to spread, but the Jewish leaders are threatened and so that they're going to do something about this. They're being led, uh, among others, by a man named Saul. 
And this is the same Saul that we saw preside over the stoning of, of, of Stephen. The same Saul that last week said that he, he was trying to destroy the church. However, this Saul is the same man that we also know as the Apostle Paul. The same man who was the first missionary of Christ to the Gentiles. Planted at least 14 churches that we know of, probably many, many more over the course of his lifetime. The same man who wrote over a third of the New Testament scriptures. Same man that will see endure beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and, and countless other sufferings for Christ as we get into the, the second two-thirds of Acts. The, the man that many call the most influential figure in human history next to Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. The same man that we read here in verse 1 of chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So the question as we start into the text this morning, how did a man with such murder in his heart become the man who we know changed history forever? The answer to that question is to look back and first understand who Saul was before he became the man known as Paul. In his own words, in Philippians 3, a book that he wrote, he says this, that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And we don't have time to go into each of these attributes of Paul, but it means that Paul, Saul, sorry, I'm going to get him mixed up probably all morning. Saul, the same person, was a big deal. He was a big deal. He was the best of the best. He had all of the PhDs, knew all the right people. He was educated by esteemed Jewish leaders such as a guy named Gamaliel. He was both a Roman citizen and a devout Jew. His life was the epitome of what it meant to follow the Jewish law to a T. His lineage, his faithfulness were impeccable. He was everything a first century Jewish man would ever hope to be. He was set in his zeal and passion for uprooting the Christians, these, these heretics who were blaspheming God. And all of these accomplishments and attributes were directed in his devotion to who he believed to be the one and only true God, Yahweh, the Lord. And so we read on this morning knowing these things of who Saul was. He went on to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And we see this, this zealous, this passionate, this religious man seeking after God as a faithful Jewish man, 
chomping at the bit to get at these people who in this passage for the first time we see referred to as followers of the way. This was the first label given other than the internal labels of disciple, the first label given in Acts that, that we see other than these common like believers, disciples kind of things, followers of the way. They're not known as you know followers of the belief or followers of the community. They're followers of the way. They have become known by the way in which they live their lives different from the culture around them, that they are are living on mission with Jesus and the power of the spirit. They're known for their way of life. And these were the people that Paul saw was going to Damascus to root out. He goes to the ruling authorities, the leaders in Jerusalem, gets some paraphernalia in the form of letters from Damascus to identify the Christians in that area. Detective Saul is on the case. And it's something important to note that Damascus is 130, 135 miles from Jerusalem. So this was not just a quick trip. This was a, at least two weeks, if he didn't stop, at least two weeks on, on the way. He was dedicated. It shows how far literally Saul was willing to go to snuff out Christians. And so I wonder this morning what the farthest you have traveled, the farthest you have gone to settle a vendetta, to get revenge, to go after someone who has wronged you or frustrated you, someone who's offended you or hurt you. I remember sometimes back when I was uh, younger and less mature in high school where I mean, oh man, I hear like some, some gossip about me or something's going on and I, I hop in my car and I'm just raging and I know where this person's going to be. And I, so I'm driving to the house and is, it, is, that just, is that just me or you guys resonate with that? You know, by the time you get there, it's like, okay, you're a little cooled off. You can be a little more reasonable, but uh, I, I doesn't happen physically as much anymore. Most of the time you go online to social media and that's where you, you kind of take out your vendettas nowadays. But that's kind of what, what Saul was doing. He's like, I'm, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission from God. Something else that's interesting is that we, we don't know anything about the Christians in Damascus. We know that the gospel has been spreading, but we haven't heard anything of, of how it got to Damascus or, or who is there or, or the stories that, that, that are all encompassed in, in that tale. We don't know any of that, but we just know that, that they're significant enough that, that Saul and the leaders of Jerusalem want to send someone to, to, to start to snuff it out. And so we see Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a man of the cloth, one who is above approach in the eyes of God, according to his understanding of Torah, of the law. He's heading to Damascus, going to end these Christians. And we read on in verse three. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice. Let's take a step back for a moment. Damascus was a long journey, a long road trip. What do you, what do you guys do when you're on a, a long road trip? Whether you're, you know, I, my wife and I, we just got back from Israel. We had a 12-hour flight there and a 12-hour flight back. And you know, I was, you know, watching all the free movies on the plane. You know, that's I love doing that. And you know, just I can sleep anywhere, so I took a couple of naps, that kind of thing. I, what do you guys do on a road trip? Maybe you, hopefully you don't like watch your kids, you know, argue the whole way. By the time you're there, you're like, man, this is going to be the worst vacation ever, you know. Well, Saul, as a faithful, pious Jewish man, religious leader, who was on the road for weeks, would have been regularly meditating on the word of God, the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah. And several serious 
scholars note that someone as devout as him may have been reflecting on what's known as the throne chariot passage in Ezekiel 1. And this was a, a common first century Jewish rabbinical passage that, 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 that those who were, were very devout, who were seeking God in full, uh, full passion, that, that they would reflect and meditate on this passage. They would picture this, this passage, this vision in Ezekiel 1. That, that, and if they did it, well, if they were fasting and praying and seeking God, that at the end of this passage of, of, of reflecting on the presence of God and the person, the face of Yahweh, that they might hear from God. And so I want you for a second to, to imagine with me that you are Saul and you are, you, are, you are devoted to the mission of Yahweh God and you're going to snuff out and you are meditating in devotion to this God that you think is one way. And you're, you're, you're meditating on this passage from Ezekiel one, starting in verse 26. Above the vault over their heads, angels, was that that looked like a throne of lapis lazuli and high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what happened to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. And Saul, meditating on this, to his astonishment, hears a voice of God in Acts 9 Saul, 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 Saul. He's done it. His devotion to the Lord has reached the level that he has actually heard from God as he's meditating in Scripture. But the voice didn't stop there. Why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? These were the last words that Saul would have expected on the road to Damascus. I'm sure he experienced that moment of, of confusion. What, what, is, what is going on? He asks, who, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? He knows this is the face of God, but he, it's, what is he saying? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And it is in this moment and with these words, as he thought he was meditating and reflected in devotion to Yahweh, that he sees the true face of God in the person of Jesus Christ and his entire world imploded and all of history shifted. Everything that he had done, everything that he had accomplished, everything who he was was turned on its head. Everything that he has worked for is now meaningless, or in his words in Philippians, rubbish. It is now rubbish. The awaited Messiah who was to save the people was the very person who he was persecuting. It was here in this sixth sense moment, this aha moment where everything was reframed. Saul was born anew, but but. He had the terrible realization that he had been persecuting the Lord of glory. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the revealed face of Yahweh God. 
It is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth that the climax of Scripture is found. And this moment is the beginning of the man that we will come to know as Paul. See, when, when someone encounters the risen Jesus, they never leave the same. Never leave the same. And this story, this moment, this experience, this conversion, it's not ultimately about the zeal of Saul or the devotion that he showed towards God. It's not about our human ability to seek or please God, but the, the beautiful reality that in every journey we go on and every road that we walk, God is seeking us. And he was seeking Saul. On every mountain or valley, God is already there. Grace is already there, working and seeking to bring all to know the true face of God in Jesus Christ. And so we come to this story that many of us have heard before. And we would be remiss to not reflect on our own stories of conversion, our own Jesus stories. I asked you this morning, what is your Jesus story? What road did Jesus meet you on? Maybe it was the road of denial, the road of desperation, the road of desire. Maybe you were on an angry journey to Damascus like Saul, a downcast road like the disciples who walked away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus, thinking Jesus was dead. A fearful place of the apostles in the upper room where have you been, where have you walked, and where has Jesus met you? Here at first, we've, we've used a couple words, a before, but, and because, to kind of frame our Jesus story. What was life like before Jesus, before you knew the face of God and the person of Jesus Christ? What was your life like? But then what changed when Jesus met you on your journey? How did he meet you there? What did that look like? And then because of that experience with Jesus, because of what he's done, how have you grown? How have you changed? How is life now different as you live this life with Jesus before, but because? I want you to be thinking about that as we continue this story this morning. We're going to actually reflect a little bit more during communion on that. The reality is we don't all have these blinding flash of light experience conversion stories like Saul. Jesus does not always meet us all like that. I want to tell you just a little bit of my story. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. And so in some sense, I was born into a community of, uh, if we're using the metaphor of light and darkness, I was born into a community of light. I knew what the light was from a very, very young age. I do not remember life in the darkness. I knew about God. I knew God. I had an experience of God. I was born into the family of God. And so when I read these stories of someone like Saul on the road to Damascus, at times I, growing up, I was envious. I, you know, I, I wanted a, a, dark, a darkness to light experience. I wanted to, to, to know what it's like to, to, to not know God so, and, and the transition into knowing, the conversion, the 
truly experiencing God. But for me, that was a slow journey over the course of time. And, 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 and I had little moments of confusion and clarity, apathy, failure, re- recommitment. And over the course of time, slowly knowing that the growing beauty and wonder of, of the light who is Jesus Christ. That's, that's just a little bit of my story. And so Jesus meets us in different kinds of ways. It's, it's not just about the moment of conversion. It's about the journey that follows. It's a long obedience in the same direction. As Tom Wright says, what matters in conversion is not how or how quickly we are turned from our own way to going God's way. What matters is that at the end of the day, we have indeed been turned. That we have indeed repented, been converted and turned towards the light who is Jesus Christ. And so Saul's journey to Damascus is is not the end of the story. It's not just about this moment of conversion, but his journey from there. And if if we're going to have, if we're going to focus on these moments of conversion, we can't just do that. We also need to look at what it looks like to live a life of conversion. And to do that, we're going to need to pay attention to others along the way. And there's one other person in this story in particular that we're going to get to in a second, whose obedience to God defines and shapes Saul's journey. In fact, without this man, there likely would not have been the man who we've come to know as the Apostle Paul. It's to him we turn as we continue in this text. In the next couple of verses, Jesus tells Saul to go on to Damascus, but he's been blinded. And so his friends help him the rest of the way there. And we pick up in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. So just a, a quick clarification. This is not the disobedient and now dead Ananias from earlier in Acts. This is a, a man who we're told is a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus, the very followers of the way that Saul is going to persecute. And, 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 he tells, and God tells him to go to this man called Saul. So we read on in verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Ananias, understandably, this man that we, we don't really know, his name means, literally means God is merciful. He's hesitant. He's fearful. Isn't this the man? Isn't this the guy who's been harming your people, our people, my brothers and sisters? Isn't he here to arrest us? And God kind of ignores that question and says, he's the one I've chosen to do my work, to witness to the world, to the Gentiles, to the people who are not Jews. And in this moment, Ananias now has a choice. He has a choice. He can trust God and go meet with this dangerous man. Or he can say, "Ah, Lord, send someone else. It's not me. 
Imagine what he would be feeling. This man, Saul, is an oppressor of Christians, perpetrating violence towards people that he likely knew, maybe some friends from, from Jerusalem been killed or thrown into prison because of it. Imagine yourself being in the same room as a known terrorist or a known mob boss, and you know it, and he's been after the kind of people that you're around. And God is asking Ananias to go be with this person. Imagine the fear. Imagine the anger or the bitterness. Despite all of this, Ananias, in obedience, decides to go. We read on in verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So in faithfulness and obedience to God, Ananias goes and he, he calls Saul a, a brother. Brother Saul, welcome to the family. He is naming something that is true but at the same time, really hard to believe and experience in this moment. Saul himself has likely not yet fully felt like he's a part of this family. I don't deserve to be a part of this family. And Ananias is, is saying something that it's something in him probably is cringing like this man who had been persecuting your people, but he is now my brother. And he's speaking this truth over Saul. He witnesses to Saul, as we have seen throughout the book of Acts, and we'll continue to see the, the idea of witnessing, of sharing the good news of the gospel with others. And he witnesses to Saul. And in this, Saul is healed and he decides to be baptized. He was literally and spiritually blind, but now he can see. And from here in, in this story, we start to see the fruit of this a few verses later. Saul goes and he at once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God, that he grew more and more powerful and, and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the face of Yahweh God. All of his zeal, his passion, his devotion that was directed towards Yahweh and the persecution of Christians is now directed towards the preaching, the witnessing of, of the good gospel that is found in, in Jesus. So much so that he starts making the Jews in the area very, very mad and they start persecuting him. The persecutor becomes the persecuted to the degree that, that other disciples have to lower him down in a basket over the wall of Damascus so that he can escape. What a way to start a ministry. But all of this, in this passage, and in the weeks to come, and in the rest of the New Testament scripture, all the things we know about the apostle Paul, all of this comes back to the moment on the road where he meets Jesus, and the moment of obedience when Ananias decides to, to meet him and welcome him into the family. You see, when we risk obedience, kingdom mission is unleashed. In our acts of faithfulness, big and small, God is working and furthering his mission, building his kingdom for the sake 
of the world. And so I ask us, I ask you this morning, who are the Saul's in your life? Who are the ones that you struggle or are afraid to be around? You don't want to spend time with. You're afraid to approach. Maybe you're uncomfortable around people who hold radically different views about life, politics, religion as you do. Or maybe there's people from that side of town or that area that you don't want to, you're not comfortable around. People who have way more means than you or way less. The ones that you just don't want to go to. Who are the Saul's in your life? And do we not believe, as we've seen in this passage and we see in every passage, that we serve a God who is, who is living and acting uh, and, and working all things for good in all people, that he's, he's meeting everyone on the roads, hoping that all come to find him. And if that's the case, who are the Saul's in your life? Where God is working and he's waiting for someone to just go meet that person like Ananias did. You see, we never hear or see Ananias again. He's never mentioned. We don't know his story before Damascus and we don't know his story after. So are you willing to be obedient and faithful even if you are forgotten? Even if history forgets you, are you willing to be faithful knowing that the mission of God, the love and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ is furthered because of your faithfulness, even if it leads to being forgotten? You see, even if history forgets us, even if your story is forgotten, God will not forget you. And he didn't forget Ananias. And through Ananias, the man who changed history, Saul, was empowered, baptized, came to know Jesus. And Saul goes on to Jerusalem to preach and teach later in this chapter to be accepted by the apostles as he's given encouragement from Barnabas guy we've seen before. And we read at the end of this passage in Acts 9, 31, that then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increased in numbers. You see, when when we lean into those moments of a conversion and when we are looking for people to come alongside who've been converted, like Saul and Ananias, Peace comes and the mission of God is furthered and flourishing is brought. This is the pattern of Acts, that faithful obedience leads to times of flourishing and gospel furthering. Catalyzed by people like Ananias. And so the invitation as we close today is not, as I've said, just to experience the moments of conversion, but to live a life of conversion, not to just focus and seek the aha moments, but about what happens afterwards, not just about the one who is converted, but about those who come alongside that person.
So this morning, as we wrap up, whether you are a Saul or an Ananias, God is calling you to work with him. He is not just at work in you, but also in everyone at this room and and your neighbors and your coworkers and the strangers on the street. He is always working, seeking to meet everyone on the road, hoping that they will come to him. He's inviting you to see that. He's inviting you to partner with him, to walk with him. And the question is this morning, will you join him on the journey?